As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, we got some ushers up the top here, and they're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air. We want to make sure a Bible gets to you. Oh, we need one right back here. Perfect. Um, and, and we just want to encourage you, if, if this is your first time here with us, and maybe this is your first time even getting a Bible, uh, we're really excited to be able to give you a copy of God's Word, and we want to pray that you would take it home, use it. It's our gift for you today. Read it and, uh, and be changed by the power of God's Word. Um, it's been said that we need to whisper where the Bible whispers, and we need to shout where the Bible shouts. And uh, there are many places where we need to be quiet because the Bible simply doesn't speak to it, or at least not with the same level of clarity as it does other things. But there are many places where the Bible speaks loudly and clearly, places and on topics that are not popular and that are in many ways controversial and can even get you in trouble in our day and age. But the Bible declares it so loudly that it would be an injustice and a sin to be silent where the Bible speaks so powerfully. I mentioned last week that um, we were breaking up Genesis 1, verse 27, really into two messages. Last week we looked at what it means to be made in the divine image of God. And this week we want to look at gender and sexuality, and we want to look at divine distinctiveness. The ways in which God has created men and women differently. And I, I want us to think about this very carefully because we are living through a massive sexual revolution. A sexual revolution that continues to accelerate at great pace and damages everything in its wake. Gender and sexuality are no longer considered sacred, but liberated. They're not binary, but fluid. They're not objective realities, but in our day and age, they're subjective feelings. This revolution has already torn apart the biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality that was once embraced in our culture and society, and it is intent on destroying the very concept of masculinity and femininity. And the world is not only speeding up, they're starting young. They're going after us at the youngest ages. And so it's imperative that we pay attention to what's going on and we take this as seriously as we possibly can. In a, a recent article in Time magazine entitled, It Can Be a Boy, a Girl, Neither or Both, the author, Eliana Docketerman, she writes about the, the transformation to gender-neutral dolls and how they are hoping to break taboos and appeal to a generation that demands social justice in brands. She goes on to say in this article that the population of young people who identify as gender non-binary is growing. One survey indicates that 27% of California teens, which shouldn't surprise us, um, identify as gender non-conforming. 
And while, listen, while it's certainly a fad, there's no doubt about that, it is a devastating fad that is leading a generation of kids in particular and our culture as a whole down a path of irreparable damage and immense destruction. Who would have ever imagined that medical professionals would be declaring today that men can give birth to babies? Or that a large portion of our population would say that it is fair for women to be required to compete in sports with biological males who identify as females or to share a locker room or a restroom with them. A few years ago now, Facebook announced that its users could now choose from 50 different genders. They explained that it was their goal to give people a chance to express, quote-unquote, your true, authentic self. But there are not 50 biological sexes. So what is the underlying assumption here? It's this, that your true, authentic self has nothing to do with your biology. And based on this logic, there is essentially an infinite number of genders, since it is a concept that refers solely to inner feelings with no reference to any physical traits. When gender is severed from biology, it becomes something we can choose, therefore something we can also change. When it comes to the, the LGBTQ+, and particularly the T, the transgender movement, a parental rights are actually being rejected. This is shocking right now. And to the despair of parents maybe whose child might be diagnosed with one or more disorders, such children are often persuaded by peers and public school authorities that they are transgender. Parents are criticized right now for, being, for not being affirming and being too rigid in terms of traditional norms. In Canada, there have already been incidents of parents being jailed and losing their children, custody of their children, for failure to affirm their child's gender identity or to use their child's preferred pronouns. Parents are told that puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones may be the only way to prevent their children from committing suicide. And yet, studies of gender dysphoria show that 80 to 95% of those who at some point identify as transgender will end up identifying with their bodily sex. As some have said, biology is not bigotry. I don't know that there is a more pressing cultural issue than this. The rejection of biblical sexual ethics and norms is promoted in almost every show and movie, including now Peppa Pig. It's built into the sex ed curriculum and the intentional indoctrination of our kids in our public school systems. It's a political platform that is being promoted as social justice and equal rights for all. It's a part of every major marketing and promotions plan championed by almost every major company from Amazon and Google to Apple. It is required internally in most companies through their equity, diversity, and inclusion departments or HR policies. It is an inescapable reality we face that collides in spectacular fashion, not not only with history up until five minutes ago, but with the clear and inescapable teachings of the Bible. 
we must return to the creation account to remind ourselves that God created only two genders, male and female. Without a belief in God as creator, there is little hope of making sense of our lives and the roles that we are intended to have in marriage, the family, and of course, in sexuality in general. Last week, we asked this question, who do you think you are? And I want to ask that question in a, a similar way this week, or I want to kind of flip the question around, and I want to focus on this week, who does God say I am? And I want to give you one sentence that we're going to pull apart in three chunks. Here's the sentence. You can just listen to it now, and, and this will be the points that will come up on the screen in a minute. First, you were created, you were carefully created with a divine design and a particular purpose. Okay? That's the statement. Let me say it again. You were carefully created with a divine design and a particular purpose. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, listen again to what God says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. First, as we think about this issue of gender and sexuality and divine distinctiveness, let's, let's just consider this statement. You are carefully created. You are carefully created. Again, we saw last week that God, when he created humanity, he took special care when it came to us. We, as human beings, are the pinnacle of God's creative work. And the word create is used three times in reference to man and woman in this single verse. And we are so unique and special in God's creation that he comes actually to chapter 2, which we're going to look at in depth in a, in a, over a couple of weeks. But in chapter 2, it's, it's like what God does is he goes back to his creation account and he wants to zoom the camera lens in to the day that he created humanity. Humanity is so unique amongst all of God's creative work that he wants to take another entire chapter just to walk through the significance of humanity, their purpose, their design, the way God intends them to function in this world. We'll get into more of this in chapter 2, but for now, I just want you to consider the unique ways in which God makes man and woman. Look at chapter 2 for a moment, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Here we have... The declaration that God has created Adam, the first man uniquely, but then drop down to verse 20. As Adam is naming all the livestock, he realizes that all of these animals have a, a corresponding pair. In Adam, he says, there, there was, there's not, a, not found a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of the ribs and he closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here we see just the unique ways in which God has, has made or built Man and woman, one out of the ground, the other out of a rib. And the Bible shows that our bodies have been very carefully created. And this is incredibly important. Listen, in our airbrushed age where the rise of insecurities when it comes to how we we view ourselves and our bodies in relation to other people, especially my heart breaks for the younger generations, especially of young girls who are constantly having to compare themselves to, to those on social media who flaunt their bodies and present themselves a a certain way as the expectation and the norm and the rise of depression and anxiety and suicide is astronomical. It's devastating. And and that's because, listen, and this happens in the church, it's because we fail to see the beauty and significance of every single individual and every single body that God has uniquely created. You know what David writes? I love this. I'll put it up on the screen. It's one of the most beautiful Psalms in Scripture. Psalm 139. David writes these ways. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Oh, that every human being would believe the reality of what God says about their body. Before we get into male and female, which is, I know the reason you're actually here, I want to actually lay out for you a brief theology of the body. I think it's a great place to start. I want to begin by reminding you actually what what the Gospel of John says. We've been reading through it, but the beginning of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, it tells us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And referring to Jesus, John tells us that the Word took on flesh. Theologians call this the incarnation. God took on a human body. At the center of the Christian faith is the belief that by coming to earth as one of us, Christ could actually save us. This is the heart of the gospel, okay? That he could, he could be our legitimate substitute if he actually became a human being. Only, only a human being could die for human beings, could take our place, could pay for our sin. And by being raised to new life, bring us into fellowship with God and begin the process of putting right all things that have gone wrong because of sin. But I want you to notice that for all this to take place, Jesus had to become flesh. To become a human person, he needed to become a human body. Jesus' incarnation, one author says, is the highest compliment the human body has ever been paid. It is also, consider this, a permanent reality. 
I mean, think this is mind-blowing. There is now, right now at this moment, a human body, a glorified human body, sitting at the right hand of God the Father at the very center of heaven. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body which believes that matter is good, physical matter is good, and God himself once took on a human body that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. Do you realize that? That, listen, heaven, listen, especially the new heavens and the new earth, we often have this idea, listen, that the flesh and matter, our physical bodies are bad. It's a, it's a modern contemporary form of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. The spiritual is what is good, and lots of religions promote this. The spiritual is good, the physical is bad, but do you realize there's a day coming when you and I will be given a resurrected, glorified, physical body that will be an eternal home for our soul. And we will not be able to enjoy the glories and bliss of the new heavens and new earth without it. And here's why this is so important. It tells us that our body is not accidental and therefore it is not incidental. Your body matters. Our body actually tells us something substantial about who we are. Our sense of self is in many ways tied to our body. Now listen, for all the difficulties you may have with it, all the things maybe you don't like about it, all the ways it's not working properly, mine included, here's what you need to understand. Your body is a gift to be treasured, not a problem to be resented. Now listen, because this, this is really important to understand. And this flies in the face of what we're seeing in our world today. Your body, listen, your body is not nothing. Nor is it everything. You hear that? Your body is not nothing, nor is it everything. Your body is you. Did you hear this? But it is also not the totality of who you are. Let me say it like this. You don't just have a body. You are a body. And what's fascinating, if you just think back to the creation account in Genesis 2 that we just read... What's fascinating to consider, this is how significant the body is. Do you realize that God made Adam's body first? Did you catch that? God, like a potter, the language is reminiscent of a potter with a piece of clay. God forms the physical human body of Adam and then he breathes the life into it. One author says it like this. We are an animated body, not an incarnated soul. I like that. In his Amazon band book, When Harry Became Sally, Ryan T. Anderson says, your body is an essential part of you, not a vehicle driven by the real you, your mind, nor a mere costume you must don. And we, we instinctively know this. We get this. I mean, when, when somebody... 
you know, hurts your body, you don't say, hey, hey, stop, stop hurting that part of my flesh that's attached to me. You say, don't hurt me. You're hurting me. We know that we've not just damaged some part of somebody or a piece of property, we've damaged someone. What you do to someone's body, you do to a person. Here's why this is so important, because the world says your body has nothing to do with your identity, and you can do with it and to it whatever you please. And that's why sex is no big deal. It's, it's just simply a physical act. It has no spiritual or emotional significance. Sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, as many times as you want, or, or you can just carve up your body, and that's just fine, because it's not really who you are. It's an accessory. But they don't really believe that, right? Because the very act of trying to change your body implies that you believe it's actually a massive part of who you are. But God says, I have carefully created you. God has individually handcrafted each one of us. That is not to say that our body is perfect. All of our bodies are broken by sin. They're not entirely what they were meant to be. But even our imperfect and fallen bodies have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You say, so what? What's, what's the point of all of this? Well, there's lots of applications that could be made about this. One being this, just be thankful. Be thankful for the body that God has given you. Learn to, to be grateful and praise the Lord for his grace in giving you the body you have. Or maybe another application is this. Steward your body well. Treat it properly. And respect it. Care for it well. Let me give you another that we could focus on. You know, we could talk about the importance of physical presence in relationship and in life versus the virtual reality that so many of us are tempted to live in in our technological age. But I simply want you to know that God made you on purpose. That's the greatest application here. And that he made you a specific way with a physical body. The world wants you to question that, to reject that, and even to be willing to, to mutilate your body so that you can create the you you feel is better than the you God created. You were carefully created. Secondly, with a divine design. You were carefully created with a divine design. The pervasive myth in our society is that gender identity is independent of biological sex. The trans narrative in particular insists that the body does not matter, that it's not the real you, quote-unquote. A 2015 fusion survey found that the majority of millennials believe gender is fluid. A World Magazine article says that this idea of being gender fluid is seen as liberating, a way to take control of one's own identity rather than accepting the one that has been culturally assigned. On almost every intake form or even health forms, apps, you have to fill out personal information. You can check male, female, or other, and oftentimes they'll simply put a box in there uh, asking you to tell them how you identify. You see, this isn't some fringe idea. This is mainstream. 
And the Bible provides us with unique insight and clarity. It shows us that our biology is meaningful. Our experience of growing up male or female is a part of what makes us us. And that's why Genesis 1.27 is so important. You see, there's three pairs of words that, that are used in Genesis 1 and 2 to describe humanity. The first word, Adam, um, in the Hebrew, is where we get the word a man from, but, but it's related to another word, and this is what the author, Moses, is trying to indicate. You see, the Hebrew word is Adam, and, and the word for ground is Adamah. You see, Adam is made from the ground. It's teaching us something about how God made Adam. It's a term that describes a potter taking a piece of clay and molding and shaping it. So here's Adam, the one who is made from Adama, the ground. He's an earthling. He's a grounder. But it's interesting that in chapter 2, when it describes uh, how, how woman is made, the term that's used there for man is the Hebrew word ish. And again, this is very intentional on Moses' part. You see, the woman is made from the man. Like the man has, who has been made from the ground, so the woman is made from the man. And so her name reflects that. So the woman, Isha, is made from the man, Ish. God's indicating just in this, this simple use of language that we are built differently I mean, it's so obvious, it's crazy that we even have to, to say this or to talk about this, that we are built differently. We're the same in so many ways, and yet we have some foundational and fundamental differences that have been built by God into our divine design. The differences are not only good, but they're necessary for humanity to most fully reflect God's image and advance God's purposes. We're going to see that shortly. But in chapter 1, verse 27, there are different words that are used here. He chooses words here that describe being male and female. The Hebrew word for male is zakar, and for female, it's nekavah. And these words are used actually to refer to the male and female parts. Human sexuality is actually in view here. You know, we have, we have this kind of concept, this idea of the anatomical design of things, um, in, in plumbing or in electrical work and in all sorts of, of different areas. But we, we say that a certain thing has a, a male part and a female part and that they, they just fit together perfectly as if, as if that's the way they were designed to function. And that's exactly what Moses is saying here in Genesis 1.27. These are words that are intrinsically reflecting the anatomical design of the male and the female. And it's beautifully complementary and very specific in terms of what God has done here. It's unmistakable. Human sexuality and gender, in other words, are, we are being told, are intertwined. And that's why massive trauma ensues when a person tries to live out from their mind what their body so clearly contradicts. Maleness and femaleness are physically grounded, not psychologically determined. Let me say that again, because this is a statement that we need to hear in light of what the world wants us to believe. Maleness and femaleness are physically grounded, not psychologically determined. 
When Genesis 1.27 talks about us being made male and female, it is talking about us being physically made as such. And all through Genesis 1, God has physically been forming things, remember? He's forming and he's filling his creation. And immediately, consider this, before the creation of humanity, God made physical creatures to populate the land, sea, and sky. And when he announced his intention to make human beings and to make them male and female, he was clearly not talking about a concept of maleness and femaleness, somehow unrelated to our physical bodies. Just the opposite. As he physically made us, he physically made us male and female, and, and, and therefore, listen, a definition of maleness and femaleness that makes no reference to physical bodies cannot be biblical, okay? That's what the Bible teaches. This is so important to grasp because the world, I know you're hearing it, they're pumping a different message at you, and you need to understand exactly what God says. Our gender identity is not something we search for in our feelings. It is something we find in our body. There's a a condition called um, body dysmorphia. You ever heard of that? Body dysmorphia is a a legitimate psychological condition. And it actually affects bodybuilders more than anybody else. And this, this condition of, of, of um, dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, here's, here's what, what happens. These people who are inflicted with this, they, they perceive in their mind, they, they feel that their body is not actually as big as it really is in reality. This is a real thing. And I mean, it's linked to all kinds of, of rates of depression and anxiety. I mean, there are cases of people like skipping out on work to go to the gym for three hours a day because, you know, they're wearing big baggy clothes because they're so paranoid. They believe their body, these are bodybuilders, they believe their body is significantly smaller and they're ashamed of it than it is in reality. And secular psychologists, you know how they treat this? They, they tell these people that they need to align their thinking about their body with their physical reality. Secular psychologists are telling them this. So why am I telling you this? Here's why. Because gender dysmorphia, or dysphoria, excuse me, is the only condition today, listen, where secular psychologists are telling people that they need to realign their body to keep up with their mind. They're they're reversing things that they, they know to be untrue. Andrew T. Walker says that we cannot remake ourselves according to self-will or even our deepest perceptions. No amount of suppression or repression can deny what is true of our bodies. You can change whatever you want on your body, but it is not going to make you what you are not. The account in Genesis presents two biological sexes, not any other number, it, is not, um, it does not present sex as a spectrum or a continuum along which people are expected to be evenly spread. Irrespective of any biological challenges we may face, listen, of any kind, the Bible tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are made with a divine design. There are no exceptions to this. Our bodies, listen, here's what I, just hear me on this. Our bodies are all fallen, okay? They're fallen. You know what that means? That means that sin has wrecked what God has made good. Our bodies are broken. We all all suffer in some way because of our physical bodies. But you want to know what else is broken? Our minds are broken. 
the Bible says that with the sin, it didn't impact us just physically. It impacted us mentally and emotionally. Every part of us is broken. And here's what, what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. It's speaking of the mind that's, that's broken by sin. So in other words, listen, we not only feel the effects of the fall in our bodies, we see the effects of the, fa- the fall in our minds. Our desires are broken and fragmented and disordered. Our affections are for things that are not for our good, but for our destruction. We perceive things about others and ourselves that are not always in line with the reality. But that does not take away from the care and intentionality with which God has made us. There are three things I just want to note here. I want to address just very fast three things that we're hearing in the world and counter them with what the Bible actually says. Three things to note here. First is this. Sex is not assigned, it is recognized. The world wants to tell you that that you have a sex that was assigned to you at birth. In other words, somebody decided what sex you were, and they did it arbitrarily, or they did it based simply on your genitalia. The Bible says this. The Bible says that your sex is something that is inherent to who you are. It is not assigned it is recognized. And it is recognized, yes, by biology, but all the way down to the chromosomal, chromosomal level. It is something that is immutable and cannot be changed. Secondly, gender is not a social construct. It is a creation construct. God has determined that there are two genders. He has designed it this way. And this, by the way, this reflects how God made all of creation. God made everything, do you realize that? God made everything in creation binary, including humanity, maleness and femaleness. It's not a social construction. Listen, in saying that, just hear me out, there are expressions of masculinity and femininity that are certainly socially embedded. Okay? If, if you go to certain... Now listen, I think there are things that transcend culture, time, geography, okay? So everywhere you go in the world, there are certain things that just seem to be inherent in maleness or femaleness. But listen, there are definitely in certain places in the world other expressions of masculinity. What masculinity looks like in this culture may be slightly different from what it looks like in this culture, and that's okay. Let me give you one more. Gender, I said this already, but... I got ahead of myself. Gender is not fluid, it's binary. Gender is not fluid. It's binary. It's built into our DNA, and therefore, it, like I said, it doesn't matter how many hormones you take as a replacement. It doesn't matter what kind of surgeries you have. You will never be able to change it. It's locked in. We are not just the outcome of God's grand activity We are the product of God's good intention. This is what we need to see in this. This is God's good design. God knew what he was doing when he made you male or female. He did it intentionally and personally. And God, by the way, God doesn't make mistakes. God wasn't like up in heaven on the divine conveyor belt where he's making humanity and going, well, well, I just made a mistake on that one. They're going to think they're a woman, but they're actually a man. You are carefully created with a divine design. You are not in the wrong body, no matter how you may feel. Finally, you are, created caref- you are carefully created excuse me, with a divine design to fulfill a particular purpose. We got a lot into purpose last week when it comes to the divine image, but let me kind of put a bow on this as we think about masculinity and femininity 
manhood and womanhood. We cannot forget that part of God's creative plan in creating male and female is to actually accomplish a particular purpose. And it's one that's very obvious. Look again at verse 28 with me. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's hard to deny that part of God's creative purposes and the reason why he has made gender binary is because procreation was necessary and embedded in God's creation mandate. Rob Smith notes this. He says, the clear implication of this move from male and female in Genesis 1 to man and woman in Genesis 2 is an implica- it's an implication everywhere confirmed as the biblical narrative unfolds is that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they in fact are, and certain key gender roles should they be taken up. This is... That is, he says, human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers. And human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. Indeed, it is this set of binary connections that makes human marriage possible. Listen, if the world, we said last week, the the purpose of God was to fill the whole world with his glory. And that required image bearers to advance across this globe. So so listen, there cannot be, we know this, right? Again, it's so obvious, I can't believe we have to say it, but in order for there to be a whole bunch of little image bearers running around, there must be a male and a female to make that happen. God has a particular purpose. And again, we are made in God's image. Image bearing is our vocation as people. Being made in God's image means that we have the capacity and calling to reflect God to the world, to represent him, excuse me, to his creation. As his Im- our image bearing is stressed, listen to this, so too is our sexual distinctiveness as male and female. This is not an accident. Our sexual distinctiveness is bound up with how we are to image God because it creates a necessary compatibility and complementarity essential for image bearing. Which is one reason why homosexuality is incompatible with the Bible. It not only rejects God's clear created design, it rejects the particular purpose and particular way in which humanity rightly images God through maleness and femaleness and sexual relationships that correspond. You see, part of how God's image is displayed is through a biblical marriage between one man and one woman. And anything else is a rejection of the creator and a distortion of the image of God in humanity. There are all sorts of things that distinguish us from one another as human beings. We can have very different temperaments, personalities, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, We have different tastes, skills, and and capacities, but these don't define us in quite the same way or to the same extent as our sexual distinctiveness does. 
And it's interesting that that, that sexual distinctiveness in, in Genesis 127 is what's getting all the attention. Did you notice that? God's not focusing here on how our personalities may differ as men and women. He's not focusing on that at all. He's focusing on us anatomically. He's focusing on the way he's designed us physically. As Alistair Roberts notes, he says, sexual difference is the one difference that is prominent in the creation narrative. And here's why, because we cannot fully understand what it means to be male and female without understanding how foundational it is to how we image and reflect God. The two things are tied together. Listen to what Ray Ortland says. He says, both male and female display the glory of God with equal brilliance. Now, stop there. That's such an important statement. We do not value men any differently than we value women in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? We all equally image God with incredible brilliance and beauty. And we're clearly talking when, it looks, when we're looking at Genesis here about something far more than reproduction. Ray Orland goes on to say this. He says, what Genesis 1 is showing us is that male and female need each other to better image God. There is something about the interplay between the two sexes that enriches us. Tim Keller puts it like this. In Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things made to work together. Heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. He goes on and he says, It is a part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things are made to unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more and more life and beauty through their relationships. One more quote. Another author says this. That means that male and female have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things that the other cannot. Sex is or was created by God to be a way to mingle these strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. He, here's a qualification. Marriage, he says, is the most intense, though not the only place, where this reunion of male and female takes place in human life. Male and female reshape, learn from, and work together. And all the married people in the room said, Amen. But every person, you don't have to be married to know that. This is just, this is the reality for all of us. We're all shaped by our maleness and femaleness and the females in the room help shape the males in the room and the males in the room shape the females in the room. And to those of you who are single, I want you to hear this. This is so important. You were created to display the image of God whether you are married or not. The unique way God has made you as male or female contributes greatly to how God has chosen to put his glory on display through humanity and in particular in the church of Jesus Christ. You are not less valuable if you are unmarried. You are not less significant. You are not less useful. In fact, you know what the Apostle Paul says? Paul says, I wish more of you were unmarried like me because then you could be more useful in the kingdom of God. You can hear Peter, who's married, saying, like, yeah, don't you know how, how much my wife and kids are slowing me down? <laughs> Listen, the church becomes the family in which male and female, together, through our distinctiveness and complementarity, image our invisible God to our world. 
We need in the church many fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers to accomplish this particular purpose. We need each other. Each sex alone constitutes the image of God, but that image is more fully reflected by the interplay, this is so amazing, between male and female. And and it seems strange in one sense to think about it like this, yet there is, is a level in which we instinctively recognize this. We sense, don't we? We sense that there are certain contexts where having only one sex present actually is diminishing in some way. That's why men's retreats are a maximum of three dates. <laughs> Any more than that, and we just, it goes downhill in a hurry. We need women to come and help us carefully you know, think through things. And <laughs> the, fe- the female presence, listen, is necessary to make men better, okay? Listen. The male presence is necessary to make women better. It's the way God's designed it. It's beautiful. And our world world rejects this. Being male and female is designed to help us be better at being people. It's not just a matter of biology, but of theology. And it's not just about (laughs) the multiplication of humanity, but the fuller imaging of God. And that theology produces our missiology. You see, we are better able, male and female, in the church of Jesus Christ, to reach the world with the gospel. Because God has made us this way. And he has said it is for our good and his glory. Let me just make three applications in light of our contemporary situation. Three applications. The first is this. I want to encourage you to withhold judgment. Now, I'm not talking about making righteous judgments. The Bible tells us that we are to judge and make righteous judgments. We all do this. Make right judgments on things that are true. I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about not being judgmental. Not being self-righteous looking down your nose and condemning people. The church has often been demonized by outsiders as being judgmental, and at times in history, I think we can acknowledge that there's been some truth to that. Other times, that's not been true, and it's simply a cliche way of attacking the church. But it's certainly true that at times, the church has been quick to condemn and slow to show compassion. But our understanding of sin should cause us to be quick to withhold judgment. Every one of us here are broken individuals. Amen? Amen. Sin has distorted every single one of us. I've never experienced gender dysphoria, but I've struggled with all sorts of sins and temptations. There are plenty of other ways my wants and desires have been twisted and distorted by sin. And our, our world, listen, is deeply confused, and there are a lot of people who are really hurting Some have legitimate struggles with their inner feelings that are seemingly not matching their external reality. There are others who have been indoctrinated and manipulated into believing a false view of gender and sexuality. They've been peer pressured into thinking a particular way or figures of authority have pushed them in a certain direction. And while this should make us righteously angry, it should also produce genuine compassion. 
To have your feelings, listen, to have your feelings sharply out of accord with your body is a life-dominating grief for many. And as Christians, we, of all people, should be able to show understanding and compassion knowing how the fall has twisted what God has pronounced as good when he made humanity into a binary, gendered reflection of his nature. And as for those children who think that they are transgender, we must listen to what they say, hear their concerns, and provide a safe place where they feel free to express their feelings and desires. And I would say the same thing for anybody who's struggling with any sexual sin or any sin at all. We must warn, listen, we must warn against body-altering surgery that is done in the name of being authentic. There are growing numbers of stories, sadly, of those who have gone through these surgeries who discover that this didn't really heal their dysphoria or bring about the sense of well-being that they hoped for or expected, and their suicide rate post-surgery is as high as 41%. Countless stories. I mean, I'm listening. I was reading so many this week of people who are, who are coming out years later, you know, at, at 14 they had their, their healthy breasts cut off or, or their, their, you know, a hysterectomy and now they're, they're 20 years old looking at themselves going, what have I done? Who let me do this? Who thought I was mature enough to make these kind of, of radical, life-altering decisions? And look back and they, they feel more unworthy, more unloved. They feel more despicable and disgusting and so many of them, listen, are living with severe rates of anxiety, depression and are taking their own lives because they can no longer stand to live that way. I think we need to wake up and realize that there are many people who struggle with their gender identity. I don't think it's nearly as many as, as the world wants us to believe, but they may be sex attracted, same sex attracted, or have gender dysphoria, or struggle with other sexual issues. Listen, I love what Heath Lambert uh, says. He's the, uh, he works for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He says this, to love transgenders, we must work through their complicated layers of sin and pain a process that requires the relational context churches can provide. It will be the death nail if we say this is wrong, but then we can't help. Our church, listen, should count it a privilege to be welcoming of all people who struggle with their sexual identities, to walk with them through the ups and downs, the wins and the losses, while recognizing that God does not affirm sexual relationships outside of the one man, one woman relationship in marriage. And while we may not have the same temptations or desires, we are all in this together. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 8 puts us in the same boat. We're all making our way as fallen people through life in a fallen creation. We are all part of the same tragically broken species. In every conversation, church, let's be as extravagant with showing grace and kindness. None of this is to say that there is no place for moral evaluation. In fact, we must secondly do this, uphold truth. We are not called to affirm what God abhors, okay? You need to hear this. We are not called to affirm what God abhors. We cannot celebrate what God condemns. We must not promote what will be eternally punished. And this stance will inevitably put us at odds with much of our culture. In fact, as I said before, you could, it could cost you jobs. Some of you, maybe it already has. It could cost you fr family and friends. It could cost you maybe at some point our freedom. But such is the case for following Jesus Christ. We cannot compromise or capitulate. We must be prepared to suffer if necessary. Don't buy the lie 
that if you don't affirm someone's experience or feelings or perceived identity, that you are somehow denying their very existence. Don't buy that lie. That's not true. If we truly love people, we will be compassionate towards them and their struggles while at the same time telling them the truth about sin. We will uphold God's word as the standard for all of humanity. We will uphold God's good design for gender and sexuality, for marriage and for family. We will do so for the good of those individuals and the good of society and the glory of our God. Parents, let me just speak to you. Talk to your kids about gender. Teach them about God's created order and point them to him as a source of gender distinctiveness. Give them a theology of the body and start young. The world is. Teach them to make appropriate biblical gender distinctions, but don't overemphasize cultural expressions of maleness and femaleness. You know, like, like oh, boys, boys never like to dance or girls never like to wrestle. Don't do that. That's foolish. Help them identify with the appropriate gender. Fathers, let me just speak to you. There's so many studies on, on this. Just three A's for you to remember, okay? If you do this faithfully as a, as, a, as a Christian parent, as you disciple your kids, I promise you it'll reap incredible benefits. It won't make perfect kids and it won't save your kids, but give your kids attention, affection, and affirmation, okay? Just lavishly. Attention, affirmation, and affection. Fathers in particular, Parents, cultivate strong and healthy marriages where, where, where the roles of manhood and womanhood and, and femaleness and maleness can be seen and loved and appreciated. What do we do to, to, to someone? What do we say to someone who says, I'm a gay Christian or I'm a trans Christian? It's becoming very popular. I was, once, I was just told at someone's church, they're very affirming of this. There is a badge of honor. We're, we're very affirming of this kind of thinking. And to this idea, Ann Polk had a, a very wise answer. Listen to what she said. She said, Satan calls you by your sinful name. God calls you a Christian who struggles with identity issues. Satan wants you to identify yourself by your sin struggle. Do you realize that? So I, I can't stand, like, listen, I, I, if you're an alcoholic, I, I can't stand that alcoholic anonymous, like, once, once an addict, always an addict. No, no, no. No, no, no. The only thing that becomes permanent about you and your identity when you follow Jesus Christ is that you are a child of God. You're no longer defined by what you used to struggle with. You're free in Christ. You're rescued and redeemed and restored. That's who you are. So you're not a gay Christian or a transgender Christian. You're a Christian who struggles with identity issues and sin like the rest of us. We should never validate people's sinful thoughts and desires because we fear offending them, losing relationships or losing influence. But listen, I know the temptation to do this. We must teach people that their feelings and desires don't define them. God defines them. For that is where true hope, healing, and joy are found, which is why finally we must, listen, hold out Christ. Hold out Christ. Help people to see that the answers are not found in radically transforming their bodies, but in having their hearts, minds, and souls radically transformed by the power and grace of God. Help people to see that joy is not found in pursuing their sinful desires or following their feelings or being true to themselves, but in pursuing Jesus and following Jesus and being true to Jesus. 
Fix your hope, church. Listen, fix your hope on Christ and hold out Christ to the world. That's what they're ultimately looking for. That's what their souls are longing for. And that is what you, as a family of God, as a follower of Christ, have to offer this world that is so broken by sin. The very thing that God used to give you hope and peace and life. Trust in and proclaim the power of the gospel that reshapes the identity of all who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. And for you, listen, who are struggling with gender, for you in here who are struggling with your own sexuality and desires, for, for you who are just struggling here with sexual immorality, period, or identity, or any sin for that matter, there is hope for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not promise an easy road or the removal of all your your sinful desires, but he promises rest for your weary soul. He promises forgiveness and freedom from the power and penalty of sin. He promises hope and healing both now and ultimately, ultimately one day soon in eternity. We all have broken bodies, but Jesus' body was broken for us that we might be redeemed, reconciled, and one day physically resurrected to a new body and a new creation where sin and sorrow Suffering will be no more, and our identity will be Christ forevermore. Even now, listen, you can choose to follow Jesus and find your identity and life in him. For all those who are in Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body.